0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Perception Podcast with me your host Caroline Partridge. Today I talk to senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Greenwich, Dr. Robert Wilson. In this illuminating conversation we explore the origins of and misconceptions around evolutionary psychology. We look at the interaction between genetics and experience especially with regards to human sexual behavior and gender identity. Please join me as we look at life through a different lens. Hello, everyone, and Rob, hello, and welcome to the Perception Podcast, and thank you so much for coming on to speak to us today. Hi, Carolyn.
1: Yeah, it's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah. So, now, before we delve into your specialism which is uh, evolutionary psychology and uh, biological psychology, I just wanted to ask you like I ask all my guests about what first drew you to the area of psychology um, or the study of psychology um what was the thing that that that, that prompted you that that kind of, that drew you in, I suppose, to your life's work?
1: <laughs> well, it's like a lot of things in my life. It it, it kind of happened by accident. Mm. Um, I'm originally from Canada, and I did my undergraduate degree at a, a university called Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And the Canadian system is is more similar to the Scottish system, where you you, uh, you do a four-year degree if you want an honours degree,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but you don't pick a, a, a specialisation until your second year. So in your first year, you, you take five different subjects, and then in your second year, you pick um, a major, and if you want to, you can pick a minor subject to study for the rest of your degree. So I took uh, biology psychology, philosophy, math, and something else that I can't remember. (laughs) Um, And the only two that I found interesting were psychology and philosophy. And I figured that I couldn't get a job with a degree in philosophy, so I chose psychology.
0: <laughs> Practical, the practicality. Practical.
1: Now, philosophy was my minor, so I, I did study philosophy all the way through, too. But uh, I ended up getting a Bachelor of Science, Honours degree in psychology. Mm. Um, and then after uh, a four-year break, I, I ended up going and doing a Master's and then a PhD at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Mm. Um, so
0: yeah. Yeah. I kind of
1: fell into it accidentally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, out of, and as you say, in a, in a, in a practical sense, it was like, okay, this makes sense to study this.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, I think like a lot of people, I had misconceptions about what it was. Mm. Um, and, you know, most of us think it's about clinical psychology or counseling, but of course psychology is a much broader discipline than that.
2: Mm. And
1: the area that I ended up specializing in was biological psychology, um, which is really how the brain works, but also how cognition works. So so how we organize information.
2: Mm. Uh, I
1: mean cognitive psychology is separate from biological psychology. Mm. But my interest was about cognition in a biological context. Um, and I actually did my PhD with homing pigeons, uh, wow. studying studying how they uh, represent the world, so how they how they they sort of find their way around and and uh, spatial memory, so how we remember locations in space. Mm. Um, and that's part of a, a field called animal cognition. Mm. Uh, and animal cognition grew out of an um, associative learning, so you know b. f. Skinner and ivan Pavlov.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, I think most people have heard of it when the cognitive
1: yeah. revolution happened in psychology, there was a cognitive revolution within biological psychology as well. Um, and in parallel with that, there was always an area called comparative psychology where people looked at what different species could do in comparison to each other. Mm. And that is what eventually became or or contributed to what became evolutionary psychology. Now, I finished my PhD in uh, 1992. Uh, and actually, that's the same year that evolutionary psychology as a discipline emerged. So there was a big conference um, And there was uh, a book called The Adapted Mind that came out of uh, this conference. Mm.
2: Um,
1: And that was the the birth of evolutionary psychology. Now, before evolutionary psychology emerged as evolutionary psychology, there there were um, other areas of inquiry like sociobiology, uh, E.O. Wilson, Um, and evolutionary psychology shares some common ground and themes with sociobiology. And some authors, like E.O. Wilson, who was sort mm-hmm. of the father of sociobiology, and Richard Dawkins, that, that yeah. some people might know from The Selfish Gene, yeah, um, and his more recent work on attacking organized religion, um, have kind of argued that evolutionary psychology is a rebranding of sociobiology. Mm-hmm but i i think that does it a disservice i think it's got uh a different perspective from yeah. sociobiology
0: yeah well that would be really great for you to 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 uh, expand on that and as you were talking i was thinking well it's really pertinent to perception especially when you're talking about cognition and and biological psychology as well because i've always been fascinated By and and this is one of the reasons that I'm doing this show is by, you know, understanding, first of all, in a psychological way, how we see ourselves in the world and how we place ourselves in the world. But also in a physiological and biological way, how we how we actually (laughs) see ourselves and what the brain is doing that affects how we see ourselves, because there are so many layers, aren't there? In how we in how we view ourselves as as individuals, but also how we view ourselves in, as part of society, and then that obviously affects our behavior completely. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. And you know, with, within evolutionary psychology, uh, there are different perspectives. So. Mm. Some of the originators of evolutionary psychology take a very strong view of it Mm. and argue that if we want to understand human behavior, then ultimately it has to be understood within the context of human evolution. Yeah. Right. So any explanation of human behavior has got to be rooted in evolution. Yeah. Other people, like myself, think of evolution as another explanatory mechanism to try and understand human behavior, but that it's not the only thing that we need to understand to understand human behavior. Oh, okay. And I mean, to a certain extent, evolution is, you know, what we would call a distal factor, because the things that we're talking about from an evolutionary perspective, you know, related to adaptive problems in our evolutionary past, mm. whereas we have other mechanisms that are much more proximal um, and driving human behavior, like uh, so, so, social factors and cultural mm. factors. Mm. Um, and for me, evolution can help us understand some things, but also society and cultural factors um, also are important. And and I think one of the problems that some people have with evolutionary psychology is that they look at it from the perspective of those sort of hardcore evolutionary psychologists who argue that evolution explains everything, Mm. um, or they take Findings from evolutionary psychology out of context, um, and interpret it sort of based on a misunderstanding of how evolution works and, and what saying that something's an, an adaptation actually means. Right? So so you know it's it's important to understand evolution, but also to understand. Sort of the perspective of the people who are trying to explain human behavior Mm. um, Mm. using evolution.
0: Yeah. So, so for people listening, who it's their first, I suppose, their first uh, or their their introduction to evolutionary psychology, and and psychology per se and evolution as you've, have you have you've just been uh, explaining there what would you say how would you say that evolutionary psychology is distinct what's what defines it what for the layperson who's listening what defines evolutionary psychology if it can be defined i know you've just said there are different schools of uh of thought around it but you personally what would you how would you define it in terms of in terms of us uh, understanding and how it and understanding how it affects our behavior i know that's a big question <laughs>
1: no I, I i it's a very important question and that it, it's basically an area of psychology that's interested in understanding how evolution, particularly Darwinian evolution, mm. Darwin, mm. um, has shaped the human mind and human behavior. Mm. So you know, evolutionary biologists will study how evolution has you know changed physical traits, yeah um, and abilities and Evolutionary psychology basically argues that, you know, the human mind and human behavior have also been shaped by evolution. Mm. So there are, there are ways in which our mind is organized, ways in which our mind works that relate to our evolutionary history. Yeah. And, of course, within evolution, one of the key concepts is the concept of an adaptation and this is basically an ability whether it's a physical ability or or a cognitive ability that has enabled our evolutionary ancestors mm. to to solve some challenge within their environment yeah um but where a lot of people misunderstand what we're talking about it's it's not a process that has an active purpose, right? So we all have a genetic makeup, yeah um, and we share an incredible amount of our our genetic uh, yeah. material. Um, and obviously we we share almost all of the genetic material with our close relatives. but every individual organism has a unique amount of genetic material mm. that they don't share exactly with someone else yeah and and that's what evolution works with by basically that that small amount of genetic material gives an individual an advantage relative to someone else in dealing with some challenge yeah and by Being more successful in overcoming that challenge, it gives them a better opportunity, directly or indirectly, to pass their genes on to subsequent generations. Yeah, yeah. Right? Now, evolution is still happening today, but most of the things that we see in human behavior and most of the features of the human mind, we think, you know, were shaped thousands of years ago mm. when humanity basically lived in, in hunter-gatherer, small hunter-gatherer groups, um, And that's important to realize. And one of the ongoing debates within evolutionary psychology is the idea that maybe our brains aren't actually that fit for purpose anymore Whoa. because <laughs> Because the problems and challenges that they were overcoming in evolutionary history are no, mm. are no longer so uh, um, appropriate. Mm. Right? Well, so, uh, let, well, let me give you an example. So, uh,
0: yeah, okay. I was about, sorry, I was about to say the first thing that came to my mind was fight or flight, you know, which with is the, exactly with a,
1: what I was going to talk about. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <with> <laughs> right? Perfect. So, yeah.
1: So, obviously, our autonomic nervous system, so one of the one of the biological systems of our, our brain, our bodies, um, has evolved to help us deal with threats. Mm-hmm. right? Now, when we were living in small hunter-gatherer societies, you know, having a system that gave us a burst of energy and helped us deal with threatening situations was obviously really beneficial. Mm-hmm. And then having a system that helped us conserve energy and recover after we dealt with the threat mm-hmm. was also really helpful. But in modern society, yes, you know, we, we do still face threats and, you know, the fight or flight system um, can be really helpful, but it, it can also be inconvenient at times so for example even though i've given thousands of lectures whenever i stand up in front of a large group of people my my fight or flight system is activated and i get sweaty palms and i breathe a little bit quicker in fact i'm doing it now because we're having this conversation Um, and that's kind of inappropriate and there's also some evidence, I think, and and I would say that this isn't my specialization, but there's some evidence that you know anxiety disorders uh, might be related to to sort of the fight or flight system not working uh, or or working too hard.
0: Yeah. Well, I was so. going to say if we have this because you do see the the uh, I mean. Uh, People who have uh, massive anxiety about—I mean, huge anxiety. Well, everybody has anxiety about standing up in front of people. I think that's the number one uh, fear that most people have, isn't it? Is it's, uh, comparable to being chased by a saber-toothed tiger? Is is standing in front of a room of people and speaking? Um, <laughs> well, except if you're an actor, which, <laughs> but even it, but even then, it's funny. It's like you know, there's still a certain amount of anxiety, except you you know how to kind of uh, control it more uh, effectively than the layperson. But um, yeah, you you do see various levels of people who are who who have such massive physiological responses to the very idea of speaking. Because their perception, I, I mean, that that kind of makes me think. Well, where is the dial? The dial has kind of gone. Woo's been it's been turned up really high. And yeah. why? And 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 is that because of then because of their conditioning as they've grown, or is that something? You know, I think we're talking nature and nurture. Is that has that been? has that been amplified because of their uh, the, the conditioning or their uh, environment as they grew? Or was it something that is a, a purely physiological thing that's really deep-rooted in them?
1: Well, you're, you're touching on a really important question. You know, Nature and nurture mm. is incredibly important. And for me, the simple truth is that it's a false dichotomy. Because everything has aspects of both. And in fact, you know, we have a genetic makeup um, and we, we have our experience, mm-hmm. but we also have a perception of what's happening to us right now. So the example that I often use with my students is, is me being nervous standing in front of them. Mm-hmm. So even though I don't appear to be nervous, I am nervous. So I have this uh, fight-or-flight system that gets activated when I'm in a situation that I perceive as threatening, but I have tons and tons of experience of doing that. Mm. So that moderates what's happening with my fight-or-flight system. But I also have my current perception of what's happening and my current perception, when I'm standing in front of a class, is that even if I give a really rubbish lecture, they're not going to come down and beat me to a pulp because I gave a big lecture. Well, you'd hope not. Right? I hope not. I hope not. I, I'd like to think you know, my lectures are never that bad.
0: Um, I've seen. You, always, I've seen you talk, Rob. You're fantastic. Yeah.
1: There's there's always an interaction between our genetic makeup, mm. our life experiences. Yeah. And how we see what's happening around us right now, and, mm. and uh, again, you know, that that's an issue where I think sort of the general public often have a, a misunderstanding. They they think something is genetic, or something is, you know, based on experience. And certainly, you know, there's a a field of inquiry called uh, behavioral genetics that attempts to identify sort of how much of something is genetically determined and how much is based on experience mm. and you know most major things like intelligence have a really strong genetic component mm. but they're also shaped by experience yeah.
0: yeah yeah so it's yeah it's never it's never just one or the other factor but but as you say an interplay between all of these factors and also our current perception which is mm-hmm something that is really important that's that's um yeah Yeah. it's really that's really interesting and so um in terms of evolutionary psychology and our current day-to-day understanding of the world um which areas do you focus on in terms of um in terms of study, and in terms of and in terms of um, information sharing with 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 students of, of what is, uh, it, well, I suppose important. Everything's important, isn't it? Everything has a has a degree of importance. But what what are your specialisms?
1: Well, I um, I have done research on the evolution of intelligence. So there there are a number of different theories about how intelligence has evolved um so uh, i've done work with non-human animals um looking at things like imitation and social learning
2: Mm.
1: um and you know what what that can tell us about cognition in non-human animals but also cognition in in human beings because obviously the ability to learn from each other
2: Mm -hmm.
1: without having to experience something ourselves is is hugely beneficial, even though we often choose not to to learn by example uh, Mm -hmm. and make our own mistakes. Um, So one of the theories uh, about the evolution of intelligence is, is called the Machiavellian Intelligence Hypothesis. And of course, Machiavelli was uh, an Italian duke or, or something. Yeah. Like that. yeah. And he was very good at manipulating people. And basically, Machiavellian intelligence is the idea that we live in social groups. So being able to understand other people in our social group,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: to understand people's intentions. Uh, Is important to be able to communicate. Our own intentions is important. (laughs) To benefit from living in a social group is important. But also, if you can learn to manipulate being in a social environment to your own advantage, that's you know that's a good thing. So it's it's kind of a cynical theory (laughs) on the evolution of intelligence because it's it's based on the idea that you know we we need to understand the social dynamics around us but also if we can manipulate the social dynamics around us for our own benefit that's that's going to be a good thing
0: well exactly but it's, isn't it isn't interesting you see this well politicians as my my mind jumps to that you know first of all but it's it's that as you say social engineering of how to position yourself in a way that you will benefit the most. I mean, that, that, that is something I I think of cavemen, you know, I think of kind of, and again, when we're talking about evolution, I think, well, that's, that's really interesting because we, I suppose we want to be with people who are like us because in a, in a kind of evolutionary perspective, you know, that, your survival depends on mm-hmm. on being part of this tribe. but then that how do you make yourself leader of that tribe? What the, you know, it, it's it's, as you say, by observing the behavior of mm-hmm. people within that tribe. and and it's just it that's really fascinating well, I mean, obviously,
1: human beings are social animals, yeah. um and If you look at non-human animals, a lot of animals that are social animals are the ones that we perceive as being more intelligent. So primates, Mm. uh, you know, are are an obvious example. Um, You know, we we look at sea mammals like dolphins that live in social groups. Mm. Um, You know, so a lot of social animals... Have a social hierarchy. Yeah. And individuals within the group sort of know their position within the hierarchy um, and are actively trying to move up the hierarchy. Hmm. And those that are at the top of the hierarchy are trying to maintain their position. Yeah. Um, And obviously, you know, that the organism that's at the top of the hierarchy is trying to stay there. Um and, and defend their position because the benefits for them, you know, they, they, they get more access to the resources or first mm. access to the resources. They, they get more opportunities to make, you know, mm. all of these things. Now, when we think about human beings, um, that probably doesn't map exactly, although I think we do compete with each other, mm. uh, obviously, but... You know, you don't think about people being at the top of the social hierarchy in human society in, in terms of having better mating opportunities.
0: Well, I don't know. Boris mm-hmm. Johnson, um, he's had about <laughs> how many how many partners did he have in? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah. but <laughs> okay. I, I mean. No, I know. Means- I'm being flippant. Uh, but yeah, no.
1: Well, I'm I'm. I personally believe flippancy is about the only response we can have to Boris Johnson at the moment. <laughs> yes. um, But that's one of the problems that even evolutionary psychology faces when we start talking about human beings mm. is that a lot of people don't want to see themselves compared to non-human animals. And that's mm. what they think that we're doing. Whereas actually what we're trying to do is understand human behavior. Yeah. Now there There are parallels between human behavior and and non humans. Uh, But human behavior is fundamentally different from a lot of non human animals. Um, So, for example, uh, human beings and higher primates, uh, sexual behavior isn't tied in with fertility. Yeah. Right? So, we're one of a very small number of Uh, Species who can have sex without, you know, trying to impregnate someone. Yeah, yeah. right, Um, And and I think that's really important. I don't think we fully understand the implications of it. Mm. But one of the possibilities that it raises is that human sexual behavior might not just be about reproduction. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and you know, and obviously, human sexual behavior isn't just about reproduction. Yeah, we we don't have to think about our own experiences. Yeah, Um, but within evolution, there's a concept called an exaptation, and that's when an adaptation or non-adaptation gets used in an adaptive way. Right? So uh, a really good example is uh, feathers,
2: mm.
1: right? Now, feathers probably evolved as a way of keeping body temperature, right? Yeah. But at some point in the evolutionary past, birds started using feathers to help them be more effective and efficient flyers.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So they took something that had evolved to solve one problem, namely keeping their bodies uh, at an appropriate temperature, and then use using it to solve another problem. yeah, right. You know. And it may well be that human sexual behavior, you know it, it initially evolved as a way of reproducing. It's not the only way that reproduction mm. can happen. But sexual reproduction is a common strategy in all species. Mm -hmm. But it may be that we now use sexual behavior to solve other problems, other, you know, so social bonding. You've Mm -hmm. probably heard of oxytocin, you know, the love hormone. Yeah, yeah. um, Has been demonstrated to be important in forming sort of pair bonds and and social bonding and things like that. So – you know it, it sexual behavior, when we're talking about human beings is more complicated than it is in in animals for whom sexual behavior is tied in with reproduction,
0: yeah, so yeah, and that's really that and and then we and and obviously sex and and sexual behavior and also gender, we come onto a whole another um uh area of investigation and uh and it would be interesting to find out from you so we we've talked about obviously human sexual behavior isn't we know isn't necessarily uh uh geared to solely to reproduction i think we (laughs) you know we 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 can all agree with that but um but but like you say there, it's interesting. When you when you use the term to, to solve other, to solve other, uh, not problems, but to solve other, what did you challenges, say, Ralph? Sorry? Challenges. Yes, to, challenges. That was the word. Thank you. To solve other challenges. That made me just think, wow. God, yeah, because you think about people who are addicted to porn, or people who are, you know, or people who are who have uh, sexual behaviours that are um, not. It's weird. I hate using the word normal. I hate the word because I I don't think there is a normal. I don't think there is any normal, but I just think that are I would say commonly accepted, you know, and then that makes me then think obviously well what is the psychological impetus for that behavior
1: well i think we're kind of straying into an area that i'm not an expert yeah um, but you know so obviously one of the things that we want to do as 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 social beings mm. is maintain relationships yeah um and you know, one way in which we maintain social relationships, mm. and it's true whether we're heterosexual, uh, gay, or bisexual, or you know, whatever our sexual orientation is, we use sexual behavior as a way of of bonding with people. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, um I, I guess there's a part of me that could see how that could be misused. So mm, you know, mm, uh, yeah. people are expecting people to have sex with them just because they want them to have sex with them and, and things like that. But um, it isn't difficult to imagine that we use sexual um, interactions yeah. for for things other than reproduction. And obviously we use it for pleasure.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: right. yeah, um, yeah. But I think we also do use it to to sort of create to relationships create, with yeah, other people. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, so, bonds. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and when we spoke earlier, we were talking about the uh, the notion of gender and of uh, and the the confusion I think that some people have with. Uh, Sex differences and gender differences, and the um, and the ev- evolution uh, around around that. Could you well, talk us through a bit of that? I mean,
1: again, this is one of the challenges that that evolutionary psychology and sociobiology before it have have faced, in that they sometimes talk about gender differences uh, or. Um, racial differences, but what they're really talking about is sexual differences, so sex differences. Now, we have XX and we have XY from a genetic perspective, and and yes, there are rare instances where people would be XXY or, um, you know, XYY, but for most people they have either two X chromosomes or an X and a Y chromosome, and that's our biological sex um gender on the other hand is more complex because yes obviously you you have a genetic foundation mm. but gender can also be influenced by sociocultural factors but in in many ways you know whether you're talking about sex differences or gender differences there's this real misunderstanding about what that means, yeah, yeah, right so if if we look at cis males and compare them to cis females, um, then on average, cis males are bigger and stronger than cis females, right? But that's an average, right mm. we're, we're talking about an average,
2: mm.
1: and there are lots of big and strong cis females who are bigger and stronger than lots of cis males. Mm -hmm. And the, the issue for me is that the variability within, you know, one of those groups is greater than the difference between them. Right. Yeah. So in, in that, in that way for me, You know, talking about an average difference doesn't make sense. Now, the first time we met, or one of the first times we met, Mm. I talked about um, sex differences in spatial ability. Yes. And on average, men have a better skill set that maps onto what we would call navigation. And on average, since women have a better skill set that maps on to remembering where things are in the environment and detecting change within the environment,
0: and birthdays, and, <laughs> and birthdays, um,
1: and. Uh, Speaking of which, it's my, it's my baby sister's 60th birthday today. Oh, so happy, happy to birthday, so
0: baby sister. If, if, <laughs>
1: if, she, if she gets a chance to listen, happy birthday, Alex. Um, sorry I couldn't be there in Nova Scotia to help you celebrate. Um, but basically, that doesn't mean that, that all cis men are better navigators than yes. all cis females, and it doesn't mean that all cis females are better at remembering where things are and detecting yeah. change. Yeah. Um I mean I'm I think one of the reasons I was so interested in in you know how people and non-human animals represent space and use that information is cuz I'm really rubbish at it. Like yeah. I am one of the worst navigators in the world, which is slightly <laughs> ironic cuz my dad was a navigator in the Canadian Navy. <laughs> um and I'm like him in almost every other regard except that one thing. That's um, interesting. You know? Um but but even though we have these average differences, if we look at individuals, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that men are like this and, and, and women are like that. It means that men tend to be at one end of the distribution, women tend to be at the other end of the distribution, mm. but there's way more overlap
2: mm.
1: than there is difference. And, you know, the, the same fallacy happens when we start looking at racial differences mm.
2: you
1: know, and comparing different racial groups because the reality is that there's way more overlap between you know racial groups than than differences so yeah and so i think evolutionary psychology uh, gets an unjustifiably bad reputation that it highlights you know, differences between genders and differences between races um, that aren't justified, whereas actually the problem is that people don't understand what those differences mean, or sometimes researchers within evolutionary psychology present that information in a way that is misrepresentative.
0: When you're lecturing, when you're, you know, uh, at Greenwich and you're you're in a lecture and you and we you're talking about sex and gender do you have conversations with the students about this or push back or does this does, does this not even come into it in any way no i i
1: i have a lecture um, on sex differences mm Although, until recently, uh, I labeled it as gender differences, but I've i started talking about sex differences because I realized that what I was talking about were sex differences. So, you know, differences that have a a strong biological foundation. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that. But you know the genetic foundation, the biological foundation, is the only thing that's important. And you know there, there's lots of um, different ideas about you know what happens uh, to the human brain during development. Mm-hmm. So um, basically, at the moment of conception, from a genetic perspective. Everyone's on a developmental course to be a genetic female Mm. until about the fifth week of pregnancy, and then there's a there's a particular gene that's activated on the Y chromosome that puts some uh, fetuses on a developmental course to become male. Now that the process goes wrong, sometimes. Um, but as the fetus develops, although all fetuses are exposed to testosterone and androgen and estrogen, the proportions of of those hormones and when they're exposed to those hormones are slightly different, depending on whether they're on the male developmental trajectory or the female developmental
2: mm. trajectory.
1: Um, but we don't really understand what that means yet. Uh, there are some people like Schwab who are arguing that they're important for things like gender identity and that what happens to our brain prenatally um, determines what our, our gender identity is going to be. Now, I'm, I'm not convinced. Um, I wouldn't dispute the fact that what happens to our brains prenatally is important, but I also think that sociocultural factors, experiential factors, mm. um, are also important, right? Yeah. Um, and
0: you know, so we're, you're saying we're... so. Sorry, so you're saying there, just for clarity, you're saying there that so that what what happens to our brains prenatally supersedes. So this is is this what Schwab is saying that it supersedes what. Is what genetically what's happening?
1: Uh, No, not not genetically. So basically, I think Schwab's argument is that during development, Mm. exposure to prenatal hormones um, follows a, a particular developmental trajectory. Yeah, yeah, but that sometimes that process gets disrupted for some reason, and that it's the disruption in that developmental trajectory that might influence gender identity later in life. Okay. Right? Okay. So if you, think, if you have two processes and and they, they happen in sync, mm. you get one outcome at the end. Yeah. And Schwab's idea is that there are... Number of factors that can cause the two processes to become desynchronous. Yeah. And when that happens, that has an influence on things like gender identity
0: later. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Um, I was, so what I was, I kind of was sort of thinking this, the same thing. It was when you're saying these, these two things that are happening. One is the, one is the, uh, gender identity kind of development area I and mean, one is the actual physical development so mm. when somebody is born they are born into this is what i'm saying so they are born into a body that mm. doesn't match the gender identity uh patterning i suppose that they that they uh, have been born with
1: yeah so so uh, i guess one thing I would say is that Summer Schwab's ideas are are quite controversial or are or not, not well accepted. Mm. Um, so I, I think he makes some important points.
2: Mm.
1: But I think that there's still lots of stuff that we need to understand. Yeah. Both biologically and and non-biologically before we can start thinking about it. But it's an interesting idea that things that happen to our brains prenatally might be influencing our gender identity later in life. I think it's an interesting idea, but one that at at the moment we don't understand enough.
0: Well, we're so kind of also in gestation, we're so... um... Uh, subject to what is going on with our mother you know the person who's carrying us uh that that obviously has a huge impact as well on our behavior once we're born. you know I, i i remember talking to um um in one of my very first episodes when i was talking to a professor of uh, perception uh, and and you know and he talked about the experiment where they had babies who <laughs> responded to theme tunes of kind of you know uh mm-hmm. the, the neighbors theme tune or whatever because their mothers had yeah. you know been watching kind of daytime tv what and mm-hmm. they they and when they were born they would respond to particular particular music or particular sounds or again if mothers had gone through i mean there's there's a there's a um i don't know if you've ever heard of him but there's a there's a doctor called John de Martini who talks about um uh people who have uh developed particular um can I, how can I sort of phrase it? People who've developmentally been uh, affected in some way, either physiologically or psychologically, it has to do with something that happened in utero mm. to their mother at a particular yeah. point of their gestation. So, um, you know, it's, it's incredible the amount, as you say, you know, it's not just what happens to us, but it's also what happens to the person that is. Is carrying us,
1: yeah, and and I mean we we're talking about the interaction between genetics and experience, mm. and and I think sometimes people forget, you know, that that there is a an intrauterine environment yeah. that uh, affects development. So you know we 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 know about, about fetal alcohol syndrome. We we know about mothers who, you know, take drugs of abuse and how that impacts development. Um, And we have, you know, tragic historical events like thalidomide, Mm. where mothers took a drug that they were told was perfectly safe to treat morning sickness. And it, you know, it had this horrible Mm. impact on on the development of their fetus. But you know, that that was awful. But it, it turned out that it was a really small window and that they no, they had to take the drug in a really small window for that to happen, and that the vast majority of women who took that drug didn't end up with children who had developmental
0: problems. Wow. Right. Um, and now, isn't that interesting? Because I never knew that. I knew about I knew about thalidomide, and I knew that that um uh, babies had been affected. By and you know the mothers had taken this for morning sickness, but I never knew that, as you just said there, that last piece of information that the vast majority of the women that had taken the drug, the babies weren't affected. Mm. Well, at least not
1: in as obvious ways. We we don't.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. We yeah, we don't know. Yeah. So
1: I I mean, the point I'm trying to make is that you know what we would have. Identify as normal development mm-hmm. is still an inter- interaction between genetics and environment. It's just an, the interuterine environment that that's important. Yeah, um, and of course, the other thing that's really hard is differentiating—you know—what happens early in life postnatally from what mm-hmm. might be going on prenatally. Um, Because despite our best efforts, we treat infants that we perceive as male differently than we do infants that we perceive as female. So um, it was an experiment, and I can't remember the the researchers' names, but basically they got parents to come into a room and there was like a a climbing frame, Mm. and they had babies that were dressed in blue and babies that were dressed in pink. And within the climbing frame, there was a section where the slope could be adjusted.
2: Mm.
1: And parents allowed babies that were dressed in blue to go down steeper slopes than babies that were dressed in pink. Now, some of the babies in blue were male, some were female, some were were male, some were, right? Um, So not even consciously subconsciously people were letting babies that they thought were boys take more risks than babies that they thought mm. were girls so even at that really young age we're we're treating them differently even if it's not something we're doing consciously yeah so it's really hard to disentangle all of these things
0: exactly we're already through our conditioning through our perception and conditioning we we are as you say unconsciously conditioning at the earliest stage possible conditioning mm-hmm. kids to have yeah. i suppose expectations of well you can't you know it's it's yeah, well you can't climb as high do you know what i mean it's it's already well you're female you can't you know can't get as high as a, you know, can't climb as high as a male. And in terms of metaphor, you know, it's like mm-hmm. you see this in work, you know, yeah. you see this, this whole kind of conditioning and this whole idea. Well, if you're female, and to, I mean, obviously things are changing because of the recognition mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it, like you're saying now, it's so deeply ingrained,
1: which, which sort of, ties back into evolution yeah so maybe as parents evolution has shaped us to want to have different experiences for our, our male children our female children because of the roles that we think on an evolutionary perspective that that they're they're going to have to do
0: yeah the males right? are going to go out there the and hunters hunt. And, and the females, yeah, they're going to go out there and they're going to hunt, and they're going to gather. And the females are going to kind of protect the children and sit around the fire and cook. And yeah, and, and the, but that brings
1: us to a really important point. Mm. And that's you know, look, you know evolution might have primed us to do these things, but there's always a choice.
2: Ex- yes.
1: Right? yeah. So, you know, I I got a a granddaughter who's not quite 4. Um you might have heard her in the background because she's been yeah. playing playing <laughs> in my garden. Um and we went to Warwick Castle the other day. Um and she got to be a princess, but she also got to be a knight.
0: Fantastic.
1: Right. Uh she uses pronouns pretty much interchangeably. Sometimes she's a boy, sometimes she's a girl.
0: Yeah and we
1: don't
0: worry about it right exactly so we, because so she's exploring we, she's exploring the absolutely. world and playing and and what you're saying there which is really important she's being allowed to and she's been yep. given the choice and yeah. there's is, there isn't anything that's been attached to her being given the choice so she has personal freedom in mm-hmm. that which is i applaud you for that because i think <laughs> you know people who in their you know, with the best interests, at her, best will in the world, will rush <laughs> to kind of pick up the, the girl who's fallen down or, you know, oh, well, he'll get up, you know, and it, yeah. the, the boy will get up, the girl, we have to yeah. kind of brush her down and make sure she's okay. It's just like, actually. And
1: and I, I know we're, we're coming towards the end of the time.
0: Yeah, but, yeah.
1: Um, so. You know, my own personal perspective as an evolutionary psychologist is that evolution has shaped the human mind and human behavior in the past, but we have social and cultural mechanisms that have a profound influence on what mm. we do now. So, you know, we we might have this... Tendency based on our evolutionary past to behave in a particular way, but we have society and we have culture that has a strong role in determining how we ultimately act. Yeah. Right. Now, you know, we could have a whole conversation about, you know, whether social factors and cultural factors have an evolutionary basis. Mm. and And that's a really interesting issue,
0: well, but next time, I'll get you back next on run, yeah, um,
1: but from my perspective, you know evolution has already been obviously been important, and it's shaped our minds in particular ways. But we also have these really powerful, proximate mechanisms that mm. can influence what evolution has produced,
0: yeah, yeah. so. Fantastic. Thank you, Rob. It's what a fantastic and fascinating conversation, especially as we, as we, you know, as we uh, near the end of that, well, all of it was brilliant, but, you know, thank, and thank you. But really, this idea of um, the idea of choice and the idea of actually being able to, because as you say, with socio, uh, social factors influencing us and social uh, social influences. We can behave. We have a choice to behave in a different way.
1: Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the most obvious thing with human beings, obviously, sexual reproduction evolved mm. as a way of propagating our species. Mm. But we also have a choice. We have a choice. We can we can reproduce or not.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a human choice. Yeah yeah so yeah brilliant Rob well, thank you it's been so wonderful to speak to you and I hope you'll come back on again and we'll have another uh, a conversation because there's so much but this is uh, well obviously you know we've had you know talk for 45 minutes or whatever and it's and it's uh, been fascinating and there's obviously more to talk about so um I'd really love you to come back on again at yeah, some point. I'm, I'd be
1: happy to do that, Caroline.
0: Brilliant! Right. And um, uh, have a wonderful day. And thank you again for coming on. Oh, and if people want to, if people want to find out more about you or track you down, hunt you down, I know yeah. you're not really a social media kind of person, but they can. Where can they uh, find? Well, uh, I mean, out they, more about you.
1: It, if they go you. to the University of Greenwich website. The, yeah. There are details about me there. Um, if they Google me, they'll probably find someone called Robert Wilson with two L's mm. who wrote a book called CBT for Dummies. Mm. And that's not me. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's someone who has a very similar name to me, um, okay. who's also a psychologist. I think they're based at the Institute of Psychiatry. Um, but that's not me because I'm at the University of Greenwich.
0: Okay, right. So people can find you at the University of Greenwich. Okay. Yes. Um, that's wonderful. And um and yeah, all I can say is just thank you. That's that was so great. Such a great conversation and a thought provoking conversation. Um there are and, important things to think about. Yeah, there are important things to think about, especially our behavior towards you know, young children and our socialization and, and yeah, again, another conversation, but, um, so thank you, Rob. That's brilliant. And, um, and I'd like to thank everybody who's listening. Thank you. Lovely listeners for, um, joining me on the perception podcast today. I would just like to let you know that the perception podcast will be having a short summer break and be back in one month on July the 19th with more fascinating and inspiring fly-on-the-wall conversations, and I'm hoping to start posting on YouTube, so please keep an eye open for those videos. I'd also like to thank each and every one of you for listening and supporting the series so far. It means everything, and it gives me the impetus to keep going. As always, please hit that like, follow, and subscribe button on the platform of your choice. And most importantly, please share these conversations with people that you think may benefit or need to hear them. So keep looking at life through that different lens, and I'll see you again soon on the Perception Podcast.